Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 16 and read verses 5 through 11. John 16, 5 through 11. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So we're continuing on in this uh, section of the Gospel of John, and he is speaking directly to his men, those apostles that have been with him. And uh, that's, it's his last exhortation. This is is hours before his crucifixion. This is, uh, these... This, he knows that this is all he will have to give them this side of the cross. Uh, he will have a few days with them after the resurrection. Uh, but for now, this is his last exhortation to them. And he's told them many things about what is going to be coming up for them, what's coming for them in the future. He says, he says early on that one of them would betray him. This last exhortation to his men, and the first thing he says to them is that one of them is a betrayer. One of them is going to give him up. He also turns then to Peter, the apostle, and says that you're going to deny me three times before a rooster crows. Three times the, the, uh, the strong apostle Peter will deny him. He said also that he would be leaving them to go prepare a place for them in his father's house. He's leaving. He's going. He's not, he's, uh, when he comes back, things will be different. But for now, this phase is over and he's going away. And he's going to his father's house. He also tells them and encourages them that they would do greater works than he did. We talked about that. We talked about how mind-boggling that is, right? The preaching of Jesus was rejected. The preaching of the apostles led to thousands upon thousands of conversions. And that's the greater works they did. He told them that he would give them a helper. He's going to send them the third person of the triune God to dwell in them and to guide them. The Holy Spirit would come to them in a special outpouring. 
He told them that they would go and bear much fruit. Right? They're not just going to uh, fizzle away. Right? They're not just going to go run and hide. They're, they're going to do that for a few hours. But then they're going to get to work. And their work is going to lead to fruit. And then... Last time he told them, we went over this, he told them that they would be hated by the world. Hated by the world. Get ready, brothers. Do you see how it went for me, Jesus says? It's going to go that way for you. You're going to be hated. It's going to be really fun. Get ready for it. And just before our passage, he tells them why he has clued them into what is coming. These things I have spoken to you, he says so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Now the time has come for him to tell them, and he wants them to be able to bring them to mind, to remember the things he said to them. He did not lead with these statements about the difficulties that would be coming to them because they needed to, to just build a foundation They needed to know something about what Jesus was doing, his works, to grow in their knowledge of him. Who is he? Right? Just all those things. To learn of the prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus was the fulfillment of. They just needed to to, uh, lay down that foundation. So Jesus builds that foundation and waits to give them the difficult news the night before he's taking off. He gets to this. He gives them this heavy news of both their greater works and the hardship that they would face as his witnesses in the world. In fact, of the matter, there was no need for him to go into all this before this point because he was with them. He was with them. Any difficulties they faced, they had God right there with him, with them. Right? He could correct them. He could redirect them. He could protect them. He was there. And so it goes without saying, he was a good leader, he was a good shepherd, and he never lost an opportunity to care for these men. He was not negligent, he hadn't left them in their spiritual infancy to fend for themselves, he was there nursing them to strength. But it is human nature, I think you guys probably know this about yourself, it's human nature to not really learn something until you're thrown into the fire isn't it? You don't really, I mean, you can learn some stuff in the abstract, but you don't really learn it until you actually have some responsibility in the situation. You know, we could hear sermon after sermon after sermon about biblical masculinity and femininity until we're married and make little boys and girls that we're responsible for, right? We haven't really heard what has been taught about masculinity and femininity, right? Um, You can prepare and prepare for a pastorate by going through, you know, a thorough mentorship program, but you don't really learn how to deal with particular, you know, situations in the church until you're actually a responsible actor in those situations, and it feels like you're flying and learning by the seat of your pants, We just don't learn our lessons in the abstract. Uh, We generally have to be thrown into the fire, and then those lessons we've been taught become really important. Jesus knows this about us, that we are obstinate generally and unteachable generally, especially in the abstract, 
Again, it is one thing to learn how to, to shoot a gun on a range, you know, when all the conditions are predictable. It's quite another thing to shoot a gun when there's an intruder in your home. And that's what you train for, right? You would be, uh, you would be worse off, undoubtedly, without range practice and practicing in the abstract, but you really have no idea how you will react and think and move when a real situation arises. And Jesus is teaching these men, in a sense, in the abstract, and now they are going to have to go out and do. He teaches them about the conditions that they are going to face, their own temptations, the hatred of the world, and knows that when they are in the crucible of ministry, they will then remember what he taught and begin to put that wisdom into practice. And they'll be like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus said it was going to be like this. Oh, that's helpful. And, and you remember what he said right after he said that we would be hated. You know, he, he told us to, to persevere. He told us that we're just following him and what he did that. And everything starts to click when you're in the heat of the battle. And so these men are about to graduate from basic training and get deployed onto the front lines where they will actually learn the things that have been taught to them abstractly. And so now he prepares them for his departure by telling them what is coming and by appointing his successor, so to speak, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus is going away. This should be wildly encouraging to these men if they understand the things that he's saying to them, right? He tells them again, verse 5, that he will be leaving them and going to the Father, the one who sent him to redeem mankind by the shedding of his blood. And strangely at this point, Jesus turns to the men and rebukes them for, asking, for not asking him, where are you going? Now, why is that strange? And he would rebuke them for that. Well, because they've asked him, where is he going? You know, they've, he, if, if you remember, twice, even in this same night, right, we have the disciples asking Jesus about his destination. In chapter 13, verse 36, we read about Peter asking him. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And here Jesus is rebuking them for not asking him where he is going. And so Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me later. And then in, in verse 5 of chapter 14, the apostle Thomas responds to Jesus' statement, and you know the way where I am going with this question, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How do we know the way? So twice these men are asking him these questions. So why does Jesus rebuke his men? For not asking him where he's going. Well, it seems clear that they are wondering. We have to remember that Jesus knows the motives of men's hearts. Okay? So he can sink deeper than just a question. It seems clear that these men are wondering about the very question that Jesus says they haven't asked him. And Peter had asked the very question. Ryle says that the questions of the disciples had not originated in a desire to know the place, 
so much as in surprise that his Lord was going at all. So they're asking, like, where are you going in the sense of, uh, we're scared, we don't want you to go away. Jesus wants to actually them to ask, where specifically are you going? Where are you going? They're like, where are you going to go? You know, we're scared, you can't leave us all alone. Um, they asked the question because they objected to him saying he was leaving, not because they genuinely wanted to know specifically where he was going. Calvin similarly says that the questions of Peter and Thomas were expressions of alarm at his departure, but not a serious inquiry about where Jesus was going. Now, what's so important about where Jesus is going? I mean, it's everything. It's wildly important where Jesus is going. He's not going simply to the grave, at least not for very long, right? He is not going to live on a beach in Florida and enjoy his retirement. He's certainly not going to do that, right? He is not disengaging at all. He's going to die He's going to rise again three days later. He's going to appear to the disciples for a few weeks. And then he's going to ascend into heaven and sit to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And that should be like, whoa. That should make you, you know, you'll be like, wow. He's going to ascend and sit to the right hand of God Almighty. In other words, he is not in any way disengaging by departing. He may be departing from them physically, but he is going to the most powerful place in all time and space. And that's the seat to the right hand of the Father. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. To be at the right hand of God, to be at the right hand of God is nothing less than to have dominion over all heaven and earth. He rules over all heaven and earth. That's what it means to be to the right hand of the Father. He has all power, all rule over all things, as the Holy Spirit explains in Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to this. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in other words, where Jesus is going is a really good question. And J Jesus wants his men not saying, where are you going? We don't want to lose you. He wants them to be like, where exactly are you going right now? They had asked, where are you going as an objection to his departure? They have, 
they should have seriously asked where he was going because to know that is to know that whatsoever comes to pass in this life is superintended by the resurrected Lord who reigns from heaven. That indeed is what they would know and what the apostles would then go and preach from city to city as they joyfully endured persecution. On the reign of Christ at the right hand of God, Calvin writes, he teaches us that when anyone seeks to condemn us, he not only seeks to render void the death of Christ, but also contends with that unequaled power with which the Father has honored him, and who with that power conferred on him supreme authority. This great assurance, which dares to triumph over the devil, death, sin, and the gates of hell, ought to lodge deep in the hearts of all the godly. The knowledge that Jesus is seated to the right hand of the Father should just lodge in your hearts and make you flex. Be confident, right? Strong, faithful. That's where Jesus is right now. He reigns over everything. And yet, we just forget. Knowing where Jesus is going would have cast the sorrow out of these disciples' hearts. It would have cast the fear out of these disciples' hearts. Instead, Jesus knows his men are fearful But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart, he says. They're scared. They're sad. Having confidence that the death of Jesus would not at all limit Christ's power and reach, but rather amplify it, they should not have been sorrowful on that night. Soon enough, with the gift of the Holy Spirit, that confidence would fill their hearts. Following the striking of the shepherd and the scattering of the sheep, they would come back together and preach to the world about their resurrected and reigning king and his eternal kingdom. And this location, where is Jesus? This location of Jesus adds to the advantage that his, depart, that, that his departure would be to his disciples. Additionally, his departure would lead to the rather stupendous gift of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Advantage number two. The helper. Amazing to contemplate. Jesus at the right hand of the Father and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in a new way upon these men. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and then the Holy Spirit enlivening the hearts and minds of the apostles. God the Father orchestrating all things that come to pass. God the Son atoning for sins and by his resurrection reigning over every earthly and heavenly authority. And then God the Spirit sent by both the Father and the Son convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Father ruling, the Son reigning, and the Spirit renewing all active in this and it's about to get really really intense really serious verse 8 
Jesus turns to speak of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. In a nutshell, the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world. Listen to that. Convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So beyond the Holy Spirit ministering to his apostles individually, the Holy Spirit will come to them and be their helper. He and And yet he also, and this is his primary work, he will work in the world to bring conviction on sin, righteousness, and judgment. What the the Holy Spirit works is conviction. Conviction, the verb means here like to expose or to reprove, to bring out into the open. Right? The Holy Spirit works in this world exposing or reproving sin, righteousness, and judgment. The common explanation of this passage is to explain that the Holy Spirit works this kind of conviction in the hearts of believers. But Jesus clearly said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of these things. Right? And that word there is important. Ryle says... Ryle is helpful here. Again, he says, If our Lord had simply said, The Spirit will convince your hearts of their own sins, of my imputed righteousness, and of a day of judgment, it would have been plain enough. But unfortunately, there are several things added which really do not chime in with this mode of interpretation. I repeat that no intelligent Christian, of course, will think of denying conviction of sin as a special and saving work of the Holy Spirit, on the hearts of believers, but it does not therefore follow that it is the thing taught in this passage. It is truth, but not the truth of the text. So, if the passage does not simply apply to the inward work of the Holy Spirit in believers, as Ryle argues, what does it mean? We have to ground what Jesus is saying in specific history particularly the work of the apostles that Jesus had been speaking about since he gathered with his men on that night. His whole purpose is exhort them out of their fears by bracing them for what is coming and awing their minds with the power that is about to be revealed in the Holy Spirit. So we see the world being convicted by the Holy Spirit concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, when? When do we see that? Look at Acts 2. Look at Acts 2. I mean, Jesus knew what was coming. He's the one who sent the Holy Spirit. He knew it was coming. Look at Acts 2, the very day when the promised Spirit is poured out on the disciples, the very thing that Jesus says is coming. And we read this, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like the violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues, other languages, right? As the Spirit was giving them utterance. 
Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now listen to that. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. So we're not just dealing here with Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. It's the cosmopolitan Jerusalem, right? There are Jews and Gentiles, and we're about to shortly get a list of all the Gentiles that would be impacted by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? What is going on? This is wackadoodle. But others were mocking and saying, they're full of sweet wine. And Peter's response is one of the most hilarious statements in all of Scripture. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to the men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for the men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. And then he says, but this, this that you see here, this that is going on, this is what it was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men see dream, shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment through the mouth of this little man, the Apostle Peter. Right? He preaches. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Just a friendly thing to say to the Jews and these men gathered around. You killed him. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope 
because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants, On his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent! And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. So from 120 to 3,120 on that afternoon. And so you see, this is, I mean, what Jesus says in John 16 is fulfilled in Acts 2, fulfilled. All the nations are gathered. They all fall under conviction by the Holy Spirit concerning sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. The whole world would be turned upside down by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the apostles. Now, here's a question. Is that what is happening in the revivals that are said to be taking place today? Like Asbury, like Baylor University, like other, um, other places that you may hear about. Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is... Are these, are those evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit is working in the world Today, by bringing conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Well, revival often is that. Right? It comes with heavy conviction. Conviction of sin is is like, and through the preaching of the gospel, conviction of sin is, is often that which is produced during times of special movements of the Holy Spirit. And we, you know that from studying history. 
The example of Jonathan Edwards preaching sinners in the hands of an angry God in Enfield, Massachusetts, that place where they, everybody else was coming to faith and the spirit was working, but Enfield was like, nah, don't want it. Don't want that revival junk. And, and so they invite Johnny E. to Enfield, and he preaches, and he can't finish the sermon because the Spirit is making the people cry out, what shall we do to be saved? Falling under conviction of their sin, right? They came into conviction. So is that what's happening at Asbury? I, I'm not sure it is. I'm just not sure. I don't know enough about it to know whether it is. Revival generally comes when there's an overwhelming conviction of our sinfulness and God's holiness, which is what we should expect because of what Jesus says in John 16 about the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't come and give massages. right? He comes and he gives conviction about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And revival generally comes when there is conviction there. It may be good music and stirring prayers. It may be worship of the Lord. But is it the work of the Spirit? I don't know. This is the, the way the Holy Spirit worked on the day of Pentecost, and it is the way we should expect Him to work in all ages because Jesus sent that Spirit, and He knows how the Spirit works. The Spirit... When working according to his own nature and not according to what we tell him to do according to our schedule and sensibilities, brings conviction. We don't like conviction, right? We don't like to be reminded of our sins. We don't like to fall under conviction. Um, everywhere the Spirit is working, though, the end result is conviction. He proves the world is wrong on all those three points, right? He is constantly going about the world and telling the world that your, your uh, convictions concerning what is sin and what is righteousness and what is judgment are wrong. They're all wrong. Right? The world is wrong about sin. Do you realize that? The world is wrong about righteousness. The world is wrong about judgment. And unless the Holy Spirit is convicting, those messages of the world are accepted by dead souls. Everybody has a theory of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Pagan, atheist, witch, druggie, Believer, unbeliever. We all have theories about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And um, unless the Holy Spirit brings conviction of truth, those messages of the world, all those disparate, wrong convictions are just accepted by dead souls. They just go down very easily. The world says that sin is not bad, that it is in fact enjoyable. How in the world are you going to go through life enjoying life? How are you going to make it if you don't, you know, give yourselves over to sin? Even though they have convictions that sin um, 
is wrong, they suppress the truth in the practice of sin, believing the delusion that they are satisfied with their sin. The world says that righteousness is by our works. We are righteous if we conform to the majority opinion. Right? That's what righteousness is today. That's woke righteousness. You've got to conform to the majority opinion. That's righteous, right? We are righteous if we conform to the majority opinion, if we abstain from certain foods, if we are popular, if we condemn what the cool kids condemn. That's righteousness. The world says that judgment is not coming. The world says eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And then nothing. You just get extinguished. The prevailing view of the world is that there is nothing after death. There's no judgment of God who made all things visible and invisible. In other words, the, world, the world's notion of sin and righteousness and judgment have nothing to do with God Almighty. On all three points, they are wrong, and the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, just sweeps about the world showing those that God has chosen, that their views of sin, righteousness, and judgment are just off, wrong, deadly, destructive. The Holy Spirit reveals that there is sin in the world because, of, as verse t 10 says, there is unbelief. We might like to define sin without reference to Jesus Christ. It is unkindness to other people or it is making distinctions among people but the Holy Spirit reveals that sin has reference to belief or unbelief in Jesus Christ there is only one sin that ultimately condemns a man to hell right and that is unbelief unbelief unrepented of will be punished eternally so the Holy Spirit reveals the world's bad definitions of sin and teaches that sin is only properly defined in relation to the Son of God the Holy Spirit reveals the true nature of righteousness and exposes the world's false teachings on what commends a man to a holy God the world really thinks that all men are righteous by nature they're good and do good. The world believes we are justified by our innate goodness. And so God owes us a reward. Everybody gets the same prize and it's a consolation trophy. The Holy Spirit reveals the disaster of that view by exposing our sinfulness by God's law and pointing us toward Jesus Christ who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross confirms our sinfulness and the resurrection of Jesus confirms our justification in him by faith. And that is what Jesus says here in John 16:10. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to my Father and you no longer see me. In other words, I rise from the dead and ascend to heaven. The Holy Spirit exposes the weakness of the world's view of righteousness by opening our eyes to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And then the Holy Spirit reveals also the true nature of judgment and exposes the false teachings of the world on the lack of a final tribunal before God. The teaching of the Holy Spirit is that man dies and then judgment. 
those clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith, will face that final judgment, the, the moment after they die, with peace and confidence. Those who denied their sin and asserted their self-righteousness will face that judgment exposed to God's anger, having no clothing of righteousness. And the Holy Spirit reveals that one of the disastrous works of the devil is to make a man doubt that there is a final judgment. Always and everywhere he's suggesting to people the same question that he put to Eve in the garden. Has God really said? Has God really said that there is a judgment to come? Has God really said that you are sinful and unrighteous? The Holy Spirit exposes this lie of the devil and teaches us that Satan, the ruler of this world, has been judged. He reveals that Satan lies and he's been lying to you. So the Holy Spirit does this convicting work. He exposes deadly views of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, and points always toward the one who sent him, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no way at all to understand rightly sin, righteousness, and judgment away from Jesus Christ. There's no way to properly understand our sinful depravity, the way to be righteous before a holy God, and how to approach the coming judgment of God outside of Jesus Christ. Without Christ, sin is defined by, you know, mutual agreement between men. With Christ, sin is revealed to be a fence against an almighty God who's coming to judge. Without Christ, righteousness is defined as conforming to prevailing opinions. With Christ, righteousness is revealed to be conformity to God's character, his very character, right? Without Christ, judgment is defined as the due reward for lack of conformity with those mutual agreements and, and prevailing opinions. And only has reference to this life. With Christ, judgment is defined as having to do with standing before God on the last day as the sole determinant of where you spend in eternity, heaven or hell. Everyone, believer and unbeliever, has opinions about sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Holy Spirit's work is to reveal what is counterfeit and promote what is right. So what should you take away from this passage today? It's a hard passage, you know, and I've had to spend the time explaining what I think it means. But what do we take away from this passage? It's, it is interesting to me that most churches, whether of the evangelical mainline churches or the Kellerite Reformed Presbyterian churches resist the work of the Holy Spirit. They argue that the Spirit's work is revealed not by conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, but His work is revealed by winsomeness, eloquence, and reasonable arguments. Winsomeness, building bridges, Right? Meeting people where they're at. But that's not the Holy Spirit's work. I mean, we may need to do some of that work. We, we probably should work on our winsomeness. 
But when the Holy Spirit works, it's like a destructive force of nature. It just tears a man down. The word is preached and it's like a hammer blow. Right? That's when the Spirit works. And so there's, there's just... There's very little fear of the Holy Spirit in a sense today. There's very little fear of God, brothers and sisters. We resist the Holy Spirit when we determine that our methods are better than His. Right? When the Holy Spirit works, He exposes sin. When the Holy Spirit works, he exposes sin. When the Holy Spirit works in Christian churches and in the hearts of Christians, he exposes sin. That's going to be our lifelong discipline from God, right? And so don't be afraid of conviction. Don't be afraid of conviction. It's a gift from God. It's a gift that he causes us to repent and the Spirit is working in that way. If you're never under the conviction of sin, then the Holy Spirit is absent. It's proof that the Holy Spirit isn't there. This is what he does. I mean, as Lloyd-Jones said in our reading for Triple B, there is no clinging to Christ until we properly see our need, our sinfulness, so don't resist the Holy Spirit's work in your own heart, revealing to you your need of Christ by giving you a knowledge of your sin. When we see revival come, you'll see people weeping over their sins because the Spirit brings conviction on sin, righteousness, and judgment. You'll see them undone with fear and regretting their entire previous lives and their thoughts that morning. And they'll come under conviction. And then Jesus will say, not guilty. I love you. You're mine. Forget about those sins. In justifying faith. And so, let's not grieve the Spirit and think that we, we have um, softer and gentler and, and more winsome and more nuanced ways of, of convicting the world concerning the wrong things that they've done and what it means to be nice and, you know. No, the Holy Spirit brings conviction concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he always will to the end of the ages when Christ returns and all is done and consummated and we enjoy the Feast of the Lamb. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit revealed these things to us. And we remember falling under conviction. And we've seen your Spirit work through the ages, sweeping into places we thought would be lost, but the Holy Spirit brought a revealing, an exposure of the sin. And we thank you that we can only properly understand sin, righteousness, and judgment by understanding who and what Jesus Christ has done. Sin is offense against you. Righteousness 
Father, is, is alien to us and is a gift from you because of the work of Christ. And the judgment that is coming is inevitable and is for all. But blessed are those who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ when they face that judgment. May we all be clothed in that righteousness. And pray in Jesus' name, amen.